1: It is Saturday, which means it is time once again for us to share one of our past episodes from our podcast archive. And this is one of our most requested episodes that we already have. It's on the Halifax Explosion. We are coming up on the 100th anniversary of this event, which will take place on December 6th of 2017. Previous hosts of the show, Sarah and Ablina, tell this story.
0: One note that comes up from time to time when we talk about this piece of history... Every year, the city of Halifax sends the city of Boston a Christmas tree as thanks for the assistance that the city rendered in the aftermath of the explosion. There's a lot of fanfare on both sides of the tree's journey, with its lighting in Boston taking place as part of a huge holiday celebration at Boston Common. And there's a bit of controversy about it, too. There is a whole lot of marketing and publicity and fanfare involved for Halifax, which makes it a pretty expensive gift on Halifax's part.
1: So with that in mind, here we go. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And every year on December 7th, Americans remember the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in 1941, which was an attack that killed thousands and launched the U.S. into World War II. But what many Americans might not know is that our neighbor to the north, Canada, commemorates a sad historical moment of its own just one day before, and that's the Halifax Explosion. And the Halifax explosion, which took place on December 6, 1917, has been called one of the worst disasters in Canada's history, one of the largest man-made non-nuclear explosions in history ever, and the largest man-made explosion prior to Hiroshima. So it's not going to be our most uplifting episode ever, as you can tell, but it is one of our most requested. And I'd say especially in the
3: past year, I've noticed a huge uptick in requests for this topic. And um, certainly as we've approached the anniversary date of December 6th as well. But the story of this disaster starts with two ships, which weren't even supposed to be in Halifax at the same time in the first place, trying to pass each other in the harbor. And so we're going to tell you about what happened, what caused the explosion, of course, the toll that it took on Halifax, and the rescue effort that followed, too. And then, of course, because this is... World War One, some suspicions, kind of an alternate history uh, that people have thought up uh, and assumed had to be the cause of a disaster of this magnitude.
2: But first, we're going to set the stage a little bit to help people understand a little bit about Halifax at this time during World War One. Some basic background, Halifax was established as a fortified settlement by the British in 1749, and it had become the capital of Nova Scotia by 1900. It had served as a garrison city to the British Empire armies, but after British forces left in 1906, it needed kind of a new purpose. So the city's port facilities grew and new factories were developed, turning Halifax into Nova Scotia's commercial center.
3: Yeah, a portly makeover almost. So because of its port facilities, Halifax, Halifax became a key player in the Allied war effort during World War One, even though it was obviously pretty far removed from the main battlefields in the war. But when the war started in 1914, Canada had gotten involved, had pledged its support to Great Britain to resist German aggression. And so the country's factories started to produce munitions and other supplies as a way of also supporting the war. And since it was Canada's, since Halifax was Canada's main port on the East Coast, it handled tons of shipping during the war, like thousands of Allied cargo ships that would go through its harbor before heading on over to Europe. Everything from soldiers to munitions to food would pass through Halifax's harbor.
2: And because of its stance in the war and the type of cargo that was passing through the port, they did have to take some precautions. According to a History Magazine article by Andrew Hind, a nightly blackout was in effect, for example, to protect the port from German submarines. There was also an anti-submarine boom, or a kind of net that was also spread across the entrance of the harbor from dusk to dawn to restrict access to the harbor during the night. And that's going to be
3: pretty crucial to our story. key. So the night of December 5th, 1917, when our story begins, there were two ships that were unwillingly stuck on either side of this anti-submarine boom. So one stuck on the outside, one stuck on the inside. One was a French freighter called the Mont Blanc, and there was also a Norwegian freighter called the Emo. And the fact that these two ships were even there at the same time was kind of a coincidence, wasn't it?
2: It was. The Emo, under the command of Captain Hakan From, was supposed to be on its way way to new york to pick up a cargo of food for the belgian people he'd wanted to sail that afternoon the captain did but according to an article by jesse bradley in military history the coal he'd ordered for 3 p.m delivery didn't show up until 5:30, when the harbor exit was already blocked off On the other hand, the Mont Blanc, which was commanded by Captain Aimé Le Medec, was supposed to arrive on the following day, December 6th, but it showed up late in the afternoon of December 5th instead, which was too late to make it into the harbor. But they went ahead and they picked up a pilot named Francis Mackey. Halifax, um, just to explain the pilot thing, it was a compulsory port, which meant that a pilot had to be in charge of any ship that was entering or leaving the harbor. And so they picked up this pilot and they had undergone an inspection by a Canadian naval officer so that they would be good to go into the harbor first thing in the morning. Get on with business. So there's another important thing
3: to note about the Mont Blanc, though. The ship's cargo might have made some of the crew pretty nervous seeing how they were on the wrong side, the the unprotected side of that submarine boom. They had 2,325 tons of picric acid in the holds, 225 tons of TNT, and 10 tons of gun cotton between the main and spar decks. And then just, just to add to things, because that doesn't sound like enough, 35 tons of volatile benzene in drums on the upper deck. And this combined, of course, made them basically a huge floating explosive. And according to that History Magazine article, Dublina mentioned having those drums of benzol on the ship's deck was against regulations in the first place. So the ship was defying regulations by having those kinds of explosives on deck, but also by not flying a red flag to signal that they had munitions on board. There's a reason why they didn't do it. It was because they were on the wrong side of that submarine net, and the captain didn't want to let every German ship in the area or any potential Germans in the area know that he was carrying all these munitions and was out there in
2: the open um, for attack. Yeah, he thought it could turn them into a target. So the two ships are stuck where they are for the night on either end of the harbor. Just to explain the harbor a little bit, because it can be kind of confusing if you can't see a picture of it, it's this long inlet. There is Bedford Basin, where the Emo was for the night, and that's kind of at the top. And then there was Halifax Harbor, which opens up into the Atlantic, and that's kind of at the bottom and that's where the Mont Blanc was. Connecting these two anchorage areas is what's called the Narrows, and that's a passage that's about a mile long and only about a half a mile wide. So you really need to follow the rules while traveling it. I'm,
3: I'm imagining it kind of like an hourglass, is that correct? I haven't actually seen the map.
2: I, I mean, I guess that you could sort of re- relate it. Like an so hourglass around. with yeah. one side that's clearly a lot smaller
3: than the other. Generally. But a narrow part in between. A narrow the really part
2: in between them. Yeah, that's the key part to remember parts. here, is it's kind of like two areas you could anchor your ship and then a long, narrow part in between that you need to travel to get a a pilot to navigate. Mm -hmm. And so the captain of the Emo, he was not at all happy about the situation, about being stuck for the night. He was really anxious to get going, but his pilot, William Hayes, had agreed to spend the night on board so that they could get going first thing in the morning. The guys on the Mont Blanc kind of had the same idea. A little after 7.30 a.m., they raised their anchor and they started traveling northward toward the Narrows in an inbound lane, traveling at a speed of about four knots. And then a little after 8 a.m., the Emo entered the north end of the Narrows, heading southward at about seven knots, even though you weren't supposed to go faster than five knots in the harbor. So they're speeding along, I guess, trying to make up for lost time. And, I mean, the captain of the Emo was just in a real hurry. Some sources suggest that the ship didn't even have official permission to depart when it took off.
3: They were just going to get going. But the ships were still a mile apart at this point when they're first entering the, the channel, traveling toward each other. And while it was barreling down the narrows, though, the Emo ran into some unexpected traffic changes. There was an American freighter that wanted to pass the Emo on the wrong side. But the ships signaled to each other, they worked out how they were going to approach this, and they were able to make the pass safely. However, this pass put the Emo in the wrong lane and on a collision course, therefore, with the Mont Blanc. So Mackie, who was the pilot of the Mont Blanc, saw the Emo change course, and at first he wasn't too worried. You know, they had enough time to to correct it to be safe and he sounded one siren signal to indicate that his ship would stay to the starboard side but the emo answered with two sirens to say that it was going to steer to port which would cause the ships to collide so (laughs) kind of mixed signals here and no agreement about how to proceed and after that it was really just mass confusion they signaled to each other again but they couldn't work it out Mackie tried to stop the engine but of course slowing down and certainly stopping a big ship like that isn't very easy. And then finally, Mackie tried to pull the ship to the left to just give the emo
2: room to pass by. But it was too late at that point. A little after 8.30 a.m., the emo slammed into the Mont Blanc and opened up a wedge of about three meters deep. Containers of benzene and picric acid smashed upon impact. And then as the ships drifted apart, sparks from that grinding steel of the ship started a fire. So Captain Lemedec saw the writing on the wall immediately and ordered his crew to abandon ship. They all jumped into lifeboats and rowed just as fast as they could over to the shore and took cover in the nearby woods.
3: But they were basically the only ones who knew how dangerous the contents of the ship were. So, of course, because the ship was not flying that telltale red flag, a lot of people who weren't part of the crew didn't realize that how severe the situation was, that it didn't just involve the two ships involved and the men on board. So hundreds of people had stopped what they were doing and were just gawking at this ship on fire with a huge column of smoke above it. And the docks started to fill up with spectators and trams started to slow down and allow passengers to check out the situation, rubberneck a little bit. And people were gathered even at the windows of their homes and office buildings and um, watching from far off factory roofs to just see... What disaster was occurring down in the harbor.
2: The fire department was alerted, and so they sent people over and a lot of small boats were approaching the Mont Blanc, trying to fight the fire as the boat, as the ship, I should say, was drifting across the channel and eventually stopped at Pier 6. And this all just reminds me of what goes on kind of, you know, have you ever been in one of those tornado warning situations where people all of a sudden want to like run out of their houses or stand at the windows and look at what's about to happen? And yes. you just feel like <laughs> it's so bad. Like, don't watch. Just take cover. Yeah, it's like one of those moments. But a few people did have an idea of what was going on and they took action. For example, a train dispatcher at Richmond Station who'd been warned by a sailor stated his post to stop a passenger train from coming into the area. He sent a telegraph that said, quote, Stop trains. Munition Ship on Fire, making for Pier 6. Goodbye.
3: This was going down, all of this gawking and trying to get a look at at the disaster, the wreck. And trying to help. And trying to help, too, of course, when at 9.06 a.m., the Mont Blanc blew up, and the ship was shattered into bits. The blast sent smoke and debris somewhere from three to five miles into the sky, and, of course... Soon enough, all of those ship fragments came raining down on the north end of the city, hitting people, hitting buildings. The ship's gun, for example, landed 5.5 kilometers away, and it said that the shock from the explosion was felt as far as 300 kilometers away.
2: The harbor bed was split and laid bare, and the rocks from it were also thrown around. And when the sea rushed back to fill in that hole in the harbor bed, it sent a huge tidal wave inland, which affected people who were standing there on the piers watching. I think that's the
3: most striking image for me to try to imagine, too. The harbor bed just cleared of water,
2: this empty pit. And then, whoosh, filling back in. Other ships in the harbor were destroyed or severely damaged, of course. The Emo, for example, was blown ashore and its captain, the pilot Hayes, and five crewmen were all killed. A split second after that explosion, there was also this huge air concussion, a kind of shock wave that instantly destroyed everything in its path. Buildings and bridges collapsed, vehicles were thrown around, roads were cracked, trees snapped. Even buildings that withstood that wave, lost their windows, and some of those buildings still fell when that wreckage that we mentioned came raining down from and, the sky.
3: Yeah, and that wave also killed hundreds of people instantly when they were hit by the shock wave, and many more were trapped in the ruins of buildings and became victims of the third onslaught, which were fires that sprang up everywhere as results of damaged gas mains and overturned wood stoves and kindling in homes. We talked about that effect of um, earthquakes and things like that a little bit in our fire episode, the yes. San Francisco fire. But basically, this entire district of Halifax called Richmond and some areas beyond that were completely decimated in just a matter of minutes. About 2,000 people were dead. 9,000 more were injured and needed medical treatment. And about 2,000 buildings were really badly damaged, which meant that approximately 15,000 people were now homeless. And that's really a low estimate because it only counts those people who were
2: found. Yeah, the death toll is considered by a lot of people to be too low. Among the dead were the city's fire chief and the deputy fire chief who'd gotten to Pier 6 right before the explosion. 200 children and the staff of the city's orphanage, about 100 students at Richmond School, 69 employees of the Canadian Government Railway, including the heroic Vince Coleman that we mentioned, who sent that telegraph out, and many, many others. However, though it kind of defies logic because they were so close to the situation to start with, Captain Limedeck and Mackie, who'd taken shelter in the woods, They survived. Who
3: would figure that the guys who had been on the ship with the explosives who jumped overboard and swam to the woods would make it? It's, It's really surprising. But the rescue effort started almost immediately to to deal with this um, this explosion and the after effects. About thirty minutes after the explosion is when things started to happen. People began to dig out the dead and look for survivors. But remember this is December and it is Nova Scotia. So their work soon got a lot tougher because a blizzard started later in the day. And yeah, I think
2: it was like the worst blizzard in the last twenty years yeah, per- or something. Perfect like timing, that.
3: right. Yeah. So that was of course bad news for all those people who were now homeless, who didn't have any shelter And there was also concern about another potential explosion. All of those fires that had started and spread since the first explosion were still a very major threat because they were quickly heading for the powder magazine at the Wellington military
2: barracks. This caused quite a bit of panic. People, even the injured ones, started heading for higher ground, and they were encouraged to by authorities, so they were being sent up. But... Soldiers were able to flood the munitions dump and keep the fire away from it. So there wasn't a second explosion after all. So it wasn't quite as bad as they thought it could be. And that was a really good thing, too, because there were already so many people who were really badly in need of doctors, medical supplies, and just places to care for the injured. Doctors, nurses, and supplies started to come in from other Nova Scotia towns that day, and by the next day, help was coming in from other Canadian provinces, too. And the international response here was really significant as well. By 2.30 that day, the U.S. Navy ships, the Tacoma and the Von Steuben, on their way back from Europe, came into the harbor And met up with the USS Colony and the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Moral. They offered up soldiers and Marines to help patrol the area, and they turned the old colony into a hospital ship with U.S. Navy docks running it, along with some Canadian nurses. And over the next few days, trains full of surgeons, doctors and nurses, and more medical supplies came in from New England. Again, though, facilities were packed. So during this time, doctors were forced to treat people in pretty much every room of any available hospital, including the kitchens, the corridors, and the closets. Some treated people on trains or in homes, in doctor's offices, or even drugstores. Just
3: making do with what they could. The the injuries, too, were really horrific, not the kind of thing that you would want to be treating on a train or in somebody's home. And um, one of the reasons why the injuries were so bad was because of all of that glass and the debris that had been flying around and, and hitting people. And we'll spare you some of the truly gory details, but... injuries are often said to have been the most prevalent and I mean if you if you think about what we mentioned earlier all those people running up to their windows to see the ship on fire and watching and and then getting faced with that explosion and Uh, A lot of people ultimately needed to have one or both eyes removed. But beside medical care, there were other types of relief that were needed. By the afternoon of the explosion, the Halifax Relief Committee, which was a volunteer organization, was organized to help find ways to shelter the homeless and identify the dead and the injured and construct some sort of temporary housing for people to live through this blizzard i mean how bad would it be to survive the explosion and then freeze
2: no kidding they also started to manage the donations that came in from around the world millions of dollars came in from several countries including britain of course and as far away as australia the u.s also started to send in supplies like food clothing and building materials including glass and the people who could install it in the meantime though a lot of the homeless had to stay in tents in that brutal cold weather
3: On December thirteenth, 1917, the wreck commissioners started to investigate the explosion. And according to the military history article that we mentioned earlier, the chairman of this commission, Judge Arthur Drysdale, was really anti-French, and he felt that the pilot and the captain of the Mont Blanc were, quote, wholly responsible. And um, it did seem like they were going to be held responsible for at least a small aspect of it initially. Captain Le Medec and Francis Mackey were arrested and charged with manslaughter for causing the death of William Hayes, who was the pilot of the Emo, as we as we mentioned earlier. And the charges were eventually dropped, and it was ruled that both the Emo and the Mont Blanc were at fault. That didn't stop people from having other theories about what really happened. Though. Oh, yeah,
2: we've always got some other theories, don't yeah, we? We sure do. So some people for some time actually believed that Germany was behind the explosion. After all, it was during the war, and if you hadn't witnessed the explosion yourself, that you can imagine that might be the first thing that comes to your mind. Some people thought it was a Zeppelin attack or a bombardment from a battle fleet. Still others later on thought that sabotage was behind this. These people think that the Emo's captain and co-pilot were both murdered by a crew member just before the explosion, allowing a German spy to come on board and orchestrate the accident but witnesses have said that they saw the captain giving all the commands later, though, during an inquiry, some harbor officers said that they had received calls inquiring about the movements of the ships and rumors started again around 1922 when Dr. Samuel Prince, who authored a study about the explosion, a sociological study, said that it could be sabotage. There's been no definitive proof of this, though. These are just ideas that people had around this time, especially.
3: Yeah, so moving away from conspiracy theories (laughs) and to uh, rehabilitation and the reconstruction of Halifax It obviously took years to rehabilitate the city and to identify the dead and to help survivors find their families. And if you visit the website of the Nova Scotia Archives, they have a whole section on the Halifax explosion. Actually, since people started recommending this topic, I've sometimes pointed them to that resource because it is so great. And we follow the um, Nova Scotia Archives on Twitter. They're really really nice about any research questions you might have so yeah it's a it's a great place to go to learn more about the disaster
2: and to see how halifax was rebuilt they have photos of the explosion's aftermath and a film clip that's kind of like a silent movie that that's takes so you disturbing through. too cuz it yes. is it is silent Yes, it's a very eerie, and there's also a list of those who died, and what I found to be really interesting was the first-hand accounts from some of the survivors. So we have part of an example here of a personal narrative given by a Dr. M.J. Burris to the director of the Halifax Disaster Record Office. At 9 o'clock was just getting up, shaving, felt the house shake and felt that something terrible had happened, thought that there was a bombardment of some kind. The explosion was low, not so loud as the noonday gun, and he thought that it was a shell from a submarine. His little daughter downstairs screamed. A second explosion was louder, but still there was no breaking of glass. He was sure now that it was a bombardment. Ran downstairs, caught up his little girl, and called to his wife and the maid to come to the cellar. Put the little girl in the cellar, then ran back for his wife, who had not come, met her at the door, and pushed her down the cellar stairs following her. They were all in the cellar when the, quote, big explosion came. Everything smashed. After waiting for some time for more, Dr. B came upstairs, went into office. A man was there with his face cut, wanted Dr. B to dress it. Soon many people were there to be, quote, fixed up. Only small hurts came first, as Dr. B lives near the ferry, and people were not so badly injured in that part of Dartmouth. Later, people from the north end came and were much worse hurt. One child had a skull fractured, broken like an eggshell, the brain substance was oozing down over the side of his face he lived about three weeks so
3: that definitely puts um puts the explosion into perspective um but i i do like having a resource like that and having um having archives where you can look up all sorts of letters and pictures and get a better sense because i mean so often we talk about things in kind of a big scale but when you have letters when you have quotes it makes it so much more personal
2: yeah it makes it real so i definitely recommend checking that out and sorry if we have had another downer episode for you here but i think it's an important story and you guys wanted to hear it and you guys wanted to hear it and um so i'm glad that we got to cover this one finally
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
2: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original Boxer Briefs for Women